On today's episode, we look at the reluctant prophet Amos. We review his message and get a picture of the conditions of Israel during the time of his prophecy. We also do our best to be fair, but to apply it to where we are today as we spend a few moments in the Word. There isn't a more reluctant prophet in all the Old Testament, it would appear, than Amos the prophet. A lot of times when we open the book of Amos and study it, we're almost instantly confused because Amos doesn't do a lot of introduction. To kind of get a good picture of what's going on in the book of Amos, I think we have to understand that Amos just starts right off with his message. In Amos chapter 1, it is very true that he begins the first two verses by giving his name. He was among the herdmen of Tekoa, and then tells that he is prophesying during the time of Uzziah and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now you must understand that this isn't the original Jeroboam who led Israel into sin. But of course this Jeroboam was uh, Jeroboam the second, the son of Joash. Now this man, no doubt uh, uh, Amos the prophet, was called upon to go and prophesy while he was out in the fields. He tells us that he had two duties. One was the herdman. The other was he was a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Obviously, he probably went into the markets, sold the sycamore fruit, but then his other job was the herdman. He was a herdman taking care of the flocks. He says there two years before the earthquake, it would appear that this earthquake was during the time of Uzziah, slightly before Uzziah was struck with leprosy. In chapter, or in verse 3, Amos wastes no time. He jumps right into his message. And I think to give us clarity as to what's happening, I want to point out that in Amos chapter 7, after his prophecy has gone on for a while, Amos finally gives us a picture into what's happening. What is it that's transpiring? In Amos chapter 7, in verse 7, uh, excuse me, verse 10, Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam the king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall be surely led away captive out of their own land. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. So let's pause a moment and understand that obviously the opening prophecy of Amos is almost in the middle of his message. Amos obviously comes in to Bethel, climbs up on a rock, if you please, and just begins to preach 
finally, Amaziah, the priest at Bethel, comes to him and says, we don't want to hear what you're saying. Get out of here, O thou seer, almost in a sarcastic manner, and then tells him, go away into Judah and prophesy there. Go somewhere else and take your message. We don't want to hear it. By the way, Amos doesn't finish. He keeps speaking to Amaziah in verse 14 and says, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit, and the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, Prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. So really the opening of the book of Amos in verse 3 is almost a punch in the gut. Amos begins, I think, with a little uniqueness. And I want to point it out to you. I think it's a little strategy on the part of Amos to get the attention of the people. In verse 3, it looks like Amos climbs up on a rock or on a high place and just begins to prophesy. He begins to proclaim in verse 3, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Now just a minute. The people of Israel would have been delighted to hear these words. That's it. Give it to them. They deserve it. Go on down in verse 5, I will also break the bar of Damascus and cut off the plain of Avon. You could almost hear them respond again. Good preaching, brother. They deserve every bit of it. In verse 6, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Can you almost hear the excitement of the people Yay, they are our sworn enemies. Pour it on them. They deserve it. And then he says, I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza in verse 7. In verse 8, I will cut off the inhabitant of Ashdod. They respond again with a thrill. Boy, if there's ever a people that deserved it, they deserve it. And then he says, for three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Once again, there is doubtless delight in the heart of the people. Tell them about it. That's what it would be like today if I turned this on and began by, by uh, denouncing the Chinese and the Iranians and the, the Russians. God's going to get all these people. And, of course, most people would turn the volume up and say, Tell us about it. That's right, brother. Those wicked people, they deserve every bit of the judgment of God. Well, keep reading. Because as you read on, you come down to verse 4 of chapter 3, of chapter 2. And Amos says, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. You can almost hear a hush fall over the crowd. Uh-oh, he's getting kind of close to home. And then in verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, 
for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have sold the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of shoes. You know, it's uh, delightful for a lot of people to hear judgment against our enemies. But the minute that you start saying, oh, wait a minute, we're going to be judged for our sin too, it instantly is unpopular. Nobody wants to hear a judgment against good old America. We're good people. We're godly people. We have a great president and everything's going our way. And after all, it's those filthy, wicked, and you name the list. People will amen them. They'll turn. In fact, a lot of people are really willing to say, give it to those liberals. Give it to those wicked sinners across the street. But the fact of the matter is, Amos was addressing the religious people. He was talking to the church, if you please. Now, if you look at the prophecy of Amos against Israel, there were several things that Amos was crying out against. In chapter 2 and verse 6, they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. In other words, they had misplaced values. They were willing to sell the valuable things for the cheap. That had angered God. Verse 7, that, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor. That's greed. God was angry with their greediness, and he addresses it later on. And then it says, a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. That's pleasure. All they cared about was self-gratification. And then, verse 9, that yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like unto the height of the cedars. And he was strong as the oak, yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. God, in essence, is saying that the Jewish people became as wicked as the Amorites were before them. They had taken on the sin of the Amorites, the very things that God cast the Amorites out of the land for now Israel was guilty of. And then in verse 12, verse 11, he says, I raised up of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. I hate to tell you this, but uh, very few people are willing to bear a serious and sobering message. Since the beginning of this series on the minor prophets, it's almost depressing to read about God's judgments. And of course, as you read about those who prophesied, they faced a lot of headwinds. And the reason was the people weren't willing to hear the negative all they wanted to hear was the good. Come on, tell us about blessing. Tell us about God's goodness. And can you at least lend credence to all the good things that we do? But God told the prophets, go and warn the people of their evil and tell them 
about their sin. Now, in chapter 4, and I'm rushing a little bit through the prophecy of Amos, I'd just like to cover this all in one day. In the prophecy of Amos chapter 4, in verse 4, come to Bethel and transgress. Bethel was a sacred place, but it became very wicked. In verse 6, he lists, beginning in verse 6, 8, 9, and 10, and 11, he lists all their sins and says, Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. In verse 8, Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. In verse 9, the same is repeated in verse 10 and in verse 11. Here God had been good to them. He had blessed them. And yet he says, For all my blessings, instead of returning unto me, you've pursued more sin and iniquity. In, verse, uh, in chapter 5 and verse 4, Amos says, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. Verse 6, Seek the Lord, and ye shall live. In verse 5, he says, But seek not to Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to naught. I wrote beside that verse three things. Seek not to Bethel. What is that? That's sentiment. And then he says, nor enter into Gilgal. That's going back to their history. Gilgal was the first place. It was named the rolling away of reproach. And upon that place became one of the most notable and blessed moments. But all it was, was history. They were just remembering back. You know, I get a kick today out of hearing all the groups that gather and they go to the old campgrounds and they go to old churches and they have great entertaining sings and they do all that they love. Isn't it interesting that now the hymns are so archaic why we can't sing those in our churches why our little kids, they can't be forced to listen to the old hymns. But isn't it interesting how sentimental they are? Oh, we love them. They're so wonderful. And yet in most of the churches, they've been shut out. Now we're singing little ditties that gratify the foot more than the heart. They're little lightweight, cheap choruses that have very little value theologically. They're all about feeling. Friends, God goes deeper than our emotions. He wants a change of life. In fact, moving on through Amos, there's something that really jumps out to me in chapter 5 and verse 14. Seek good and not the evil that ye may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. In verse 15, hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. With all of their religion and all of their sentiment and all of their history, God is saying, I'm not interested in your religious activity, all of your little entertaining religious mockery. If you want my blessing and if you want me to withhold my judgment, 
It's time for you to reestablish righteousness. And as if that isn't enough, in verse 21 of chapter 5, Amos cries out. <clears throat> he says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the noise, the melody of thy vials. But let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. You know, God is not interested in religious ritual. He's interested in righteous activity. Far too much has been given to ceremony in our day, paying lip service to religion, paying lip service to the old days and the old ways, but very few are participating in those anymore. They scoff at the old prophets who say, we need to return to prayer. We need to return to righteousness. We need to go back to a nation that is seeking the Lord and pursuing righteousness. Actually, the call of our day, there's none righteous, no, not one. You know, ladies and gentlemen, this is the sin of our generation. We have refused righteousness. We like to sing it. We like to sing amazing grace, but most grace doesn't even have the strength or the power to deliver you from sin. We sing about a powerful God, and then preachers get up and talk about how failing and what a weak, poor worm of the dust we are. Friends, sinning religion has become the sin of the nation, and people love it. It allows them to maintain their worldly behavior, and if anybody dares to cry out about the sin of our day, why, they're looked down on as some negativist. Well, I must tell you, God is interested in a restoration to righteousness. If we want God's blessing in our land, we are going to have to return to righteousness. And God says, I've brought in the pestilence. Amos brings out the pestilence that God allowed in chapter 7. He begins, Behold, he formed the grasshoppers and uh, goes on down through verse 7 and talks about the, the things that God brought into the land. But then in verse uh, 8 of chapter 7, Then the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, A plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. In essence, God is saying, I've set the plumb line of my righteousness. Here's the standard. I'm not even going to visit them anymore until I see a wholehearted return to righteousness. In chapter 8 and verse 11, Amos says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
You know, the greatest famine isn't a famine of food. The greatest famine is when the Word of God is no longer expounded, believed, and practiced. When the church and the ministry becomes nothing more than people pleasers, and we spend our time trying to placate and pacify when churches are filled with thousands of people and yet no righteousness is in them, I hate to tell you this, but maybe God has emptied the churches on purpose. You see, if ever there was a generation that ought to build upon our past, it's this generation. In fact, there's a lot of people who love the writings of E.M. Bounds and A.W. Tozer, and you go through the list of the greats of a generation or two or three ago, and yet they're living far beneath their message. And here's the reason. Many pulpits from Sunday to Sunday are silent about sin. Oh, they encourage people to do a little better, but not to wholeheartedly turn from their sin unto the Lord. I want to tell you that there needs to be a revival of returning to the principles of the Word of God. God has set His plumb line in the midst of His people. The plumb line is that which hangs down and marks the spot. It's perfectly level. God has set a plumb line in the midst of the church. And that's a plumb line of righteousness and true holiness. The scripture says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord.